Welcome to Long Covid Physio Podcasts, the podcast for physiotherapists, support workers and other allied health professionals to share their stories of living with Long Covid. Hello and welcome to Long Covid Physio Podcast. My name is Darren Brown, I'm a physiotherapist and I have experience of living with Long Covid. And today we have a very special guest. We have Jessica. Jessica, can I ask you to introduce yourself please? Um, Sure, I'm a physiotherapist living in Calgary, Alberta, Canada and I'm a respiratory musculoskeletal physio, I guess you could say. Um, Respiratory physiotherapy is kind of not um, as prevalent in Canada anymore because we have the introduction of respiratory therapists who do all the technological stuff and intubations and things like that in ICU. So actually physios don't do a lot of respiratory anymore. So I am a traditionally a musculoskeletal orthopedic physio and kind of evolved into treating breathing pattern disorders. Um, And so my clinic kind of focuses almost exclusively on breathlessness. Fantastic. Oh, that's really exciting. And I'm so excited to have this podcast with you today because, as we know, our podcasts are have so far focused on lived experiences of physiotherapists or other allied health professionals living with long COVID. And today we're really excited to have you because you're one of our allies. You're, you're there kind of championing our cause as another physiotherapist. I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> and we're really excited for this because we really want to have open dialogues with lots of people, whether they be living with or not living with long covid so and also you're our first canadian as well so this is really exciting oh i should have brought a little flag to wave around (laughs) (laughs) um i don't think i've ever been to alberta i've been to canada quite a few times so i'm I'm not particularly familiar with that neck of the woods but um we have uh, the mountains mountains very nice so are you where you are or are you are you okay um, it is, I think it was minus 11 this morning, which is warmer than it has been all week. It's been a little bit, <laughs> look on your face. Um, we've been going through a cold snap. And so it had been like minus 20 at night, um, which actually isn't that bad. We can get down to minus 30. So it's okay. Um, but we have weird temperature swings. Like tomorrow it's going to be plus seven. And then on Friday, it's going to be a high of minus 17. So we go absolutely all over the place, which isn't great for our long COVID folks with these temperature swings. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I must admit, I feel like a complete fraud now because today I was moaning because today in London, it was five degrees and I felt freezing. But it's a damp cold there. It's a damp cold. We have a very dry cold. So it does feel a little bit different. Like it, it isn't oftentimes when it's minus 30, the sun is shining and it's brilliant out and it's actually not that bad. I can understand like a cold damp cloudy five degrees can feel much colder than sometimes the minus 30 when it's sunny out I know it seems weird but yeah (laughs) (laughs) so I was wondering if you would do me the honor of sharing your interest and your experience in the area of long COVID sure yeah it's been a bit of a journey because um as you know, as I said, we were treating breathlessness in a variety of respiratory diseases, or even for those without respiratory disease, but had this unexplained breathlessness. And then this respiratory virus came out and pandemic came out and um, kind of everything shut down. And we thought, wow, we kind of this, you know, I'm well placed to deal with 
the, the fallout from a respiratory and virus. And I was actually thinking kind of, okay, how do I transition to post-hospital, post-ICU care? Because at the time we were really thinking ARDS type stuff. And um, so kind of transitioning and trying to speak with some of the referral sources and things like that. But actually our first wave wasn't very bad. We actually didn't have a lot of hospitalizations, a lot of ICU. But then I started getting referrals um, coming in from our respirologists and, and they would be, you know, unexplained breathlessness. Well, then I'd ask them and they say, well, I was, I was sick with something in February or March. <laughs> and so you start asking and you go, well, what's going on here? And because I was following this respiratory virus, actually through Twitter mostly, all of a sudden I started hearing about long COVID because you guys were way ahead of us. You guys are several months ahead of us. And so I was like, what's going on here, right? And and it really, then I just started to, you know, dive in and Twitter being the echo chamber. Now I open it up and everything is long COVID, long COVID, long COVID. <laughs> so I, I found myself embedded in it and, and found myself actually being introduced to post-exertional malaise and post-viral fatigue, which in a, in a, another kind of twist is actually back in April, I had a patient that was referred to me that had ME and I didn't actually know what ME was and she was actually a physio. And so she was referred to me for breathlessness, not for ME, right? And so I got to talking with her and, and I was like, what is, what is this? I didn't know, cause I'm not really seeing chronic pain, chronic fatigue, I'm, it, it's, it, I'm generally pretty respiratory based. Mm. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then a couple of weeks later, I had another patient come in to see me for breathlessness, but I was like, you have ME. <laughs> and then I had another patient and I was like, I think you have ME too. And then all of a sudden the long COVID came and all of this kind of came together. And I was like, oh my goodness, what is this? And how have I missed this for so long? So I'm kind of new to that whole, um, I guess this whole area, but I've kind of really kind of jumped in head first, really. <laughs> Oh, well, well, thank you for jumping in headfirst, because I'm sure your patients are incredibly grateful for the support that you've given. And I must admit, I, as a physio myself, uh, so, so my background is mostly in HIV and oncology, and I'm, I'm mostly inpatient, but also do outpatient work as well. The, 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 the topic of post-viral fatigue and particularly post-exertion malaise in the context of MACFS hadn't really crossed my doors either. And, and I'm, I'm very happy to admit that I had those blind spots. And I think a lot of healthcare professionals may do. And I'm not surprised why so many people living with MECFS find the whole healthcare infrastructure quite frustrating because there are so many people that don't. But it's really interesting, isn't it, to hear how many health professionals are now having to become aware of this because of how prevalent uh, coronaviruses and consequently yeah. how uh, frequent people may be experiencing the long-term consequences also known as long COVID. Uh, yeah. So yeah it, it, and I think what you said there about people just coming through your door we're probably going to have so many different healthcare professionals now that are going to have people coming through their doors that just happened to have long COVID. <laughs> yeah exactly and and you know a couple of patients that came to me came from um, they had been seeing other physios and um, 
they, the other physio had been putting them on the treadmill and prescribing exercise and things like that. And, and they, the one found me through my website and she's like, well, I'm on workers' compensation. So I don't know if you guys have workers' compensation or anything like that, but anyway, they were flight attendants got sick at work. So therefore their, their, um, disability and their, um, rehab is covered through this workers' compensation board, but I'm not a contracted, uh, clinician with them. So you have to get special permission to come and see. So, um, when they reached out to me, they're like, I would like to talk to, you know, my case manager to see if we can come and see you. And and I said, don't exercise, whatever you're doing, stop what you're doing because they got sick in March, um, didn't get a positive test. I could tell you that story in a second because it's, <laughs> this one's a frustrating one. But anyway, they got sick in March and it was September. They had another relapse because they had been trying to exercise and push through. And so I said, stop everything, right? And this is why. And I, you know, I think I even sent them some of the um, resources from Physios for ME about, you know, stop, rest, pace and, and things like that. And um, yeah, and so then I started a conversation with Workers' Compensation Board about, hey, we can't be exercising a certain, you know, this, this subset of patients, like this is something that's really um, important. And so then that's when I kind of started getting on, on with contacting people about, we need to get this information out. So I actually have a couple of webinars coming up in February, talking about this is what we're going to be seeing in these patients, because they are going to end up coming to your clinic. And we as physios, we need to be aware mm -hmm. of, you know, who can exercise and who should not be exercising. It's a completely different way of thinking, right? It's not, this isn't deconditioning. This isn't just, you just need to push through it, right? And so, yeah. I'm kind yeah. of on a little bit of a mission that way. <laughs> oh, well, well, uh, please do be on that mission because I think <laughs> it's such an important message and it, it's something that I believe very strongly in. And, and I know that one of the things that I found really personally difficult with at the minute is around the topic of physical activity and exercise in the context of long COVID because th there is just insufficient evidence to guide us as to what is safe or effective to provide best practice we have nothing <laughs> all we can do is translate from other areas and i think exactly right one of the the biggest benefits but also becomes a challenge of the name long covid is that because we don't understand really what's causing long covid and nor do we understand the trajectory of long covid and it's an incredibly heterogeneous group of people basically long covid just basically means that you've got ongoing symptoms right uh, because we don't understand it which is why it's yeah. a great term for that um but the problem with that is there's going to be subsets and we don't really know who they are which is why you can't have blanket approaches to this and we must have personalized individualized and risk stratified yeah. care which is what's proving the biggest issue at the minute with the conversations and the debates about physical activity and exercise because a lot of yeah. us are not used to maybe having to accept that maybe exercise could be harmful for some people yeah yeah, for sure. And, 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 you know, one of the things that I'm also kind of struggling with is, well, am I, should somebody be extra, like, I'm having a little bit of difficulty with going, okay, well, I've, I've had these people resting, but they're still not feeling great. Should, should maybe we try a little bit of exercise? See if that, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe this, this group actually needs, or this person needs to move a little bit more. So it is definitely super tricky navigating that. Right. And again, looking at that person in front of you. Right. So sometimes I'm like, well, let's just try a couple of these 
movement since supine and I want you to to record it I've actually I'm creating a journal I it's so far it was just a word document but I'm actually going to get some printed up that says here's my activities for the day here's my heart rate here's <laughs> here's my symptoms for the day and then a thing that says exercises meaning you know if I give them some breathing specific exercises or if I give them just some mobility exercises lying down and then what was your response to that so that we can start to chart and see it because I think if we're not writing that down also people don't have the they can't remember there's lots of that brain fog going on and they also don't realize right one one person that I gave the journal to she goes I didn't realize how often I was getting up and walking out to my barn because she mm. she lives on a farm right she's like I didn't know until I wrote it down and then I went oh mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yes. so. really really interesting because mm -hmm. one of the things I was thinking is about the role of your uh, uh, input in terms of the breath work and how that's manifesting with people that might be experiencing fatigue plus post-exertion malaise and whether you've seen anything with that. Yeah, so I'm actually starting to, I guess, collect data. I've got a spreadsheet out now. And so it's just like, okay, this, you know, this person is this old and, or like their age and sex. And then I'm writing out any of the metrics that I'm gathering, anything at all, just so we can start to see, is there some sort of pattern? And, and to be honest, the pattern is that most of them have a breathing pattern disorder. Most of them are breathing quite rapidly. They're very shallow. I also test um, respiratory muscle strength. Um, there's a large portion of them that have respiratory muscle weakness, um, which is kind of, you're wondering why, because again, they, it's not like they were ventilated. It's not like they were hospitalized or anything like that, but we're seeing that. Um, and then a few are in that tachycardic dysautonomia group as well. But by far, there's only been a couple that have, have had like what you would consider kind of normal breathing patterns or efficient breathing patterns for, for their resting state. So. And for anyone that might be listening that maybe doesn't understand breathing pattern disorders, would you mm -hmm. explain a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, it basically, it refers to breathing in a way that is doesn't match your body's state. So, and then it and then it can create symptoms. So it can happen in the presence of lung disease, but it can also happen without that. So, for instance, you might breathe too fast, or you might breathe a little bit too shallow. Something that creates a mismatch between what your body actually needs from your breathing and what you're actually doing. So I often say most of my people are that over breathing state, I say you're breathing like you're running, but you're just sitting there. Like that's a mismatch, right? We're moving too much air and it can create a lot of difficulties. Um, I think that uh, some of the time that that upper chest breathing pattern can contribute to some of that chest pain because we're heaving on an area that doesn't move as much and as freely, right? So normally we're meant to breathe down here diaphragmatically. It's like super efficient. We don't have to work hard at it. Actually breathing up here is a little, requires a little bit more work. Oftentimes people are kind of tensed up like that. So they breathe in and kind of hold it. And I think that contributes to some of the chest pain as well. It's certainly not a hundred percent of it because we've, I've worked on, you know, like adjusting that and we're still getting some of this unknown chest pain, mm. but it certainly can help. It can help lower respiratory rate, if we can teach that lower, slower breathing pattern, help with heart rate control, things like that. Anxiety management, of course, as well, when we get into a little bit more about that relaxed state breathing pattern. Mm. 
That's so fascinating because so many people uh, that I know that are living with long COVID at the minute are may not report a breathing pattern disorder, but do report costochondritis. Um, yeah. And you describe that kind of like chest wall pain. Um, yeah. So I wondered, like, is there any associations with like breathing pattern disorders and things like costochondritis? And yeah, yeah. So a few of us actually kind of are ch chattering back and forth. I love Twitter for this. I just absolutely <laughs> love it. I've connected with so many people actually over in the UK. I've never been to the UK. Ironically, I was supposed to I go wish to you London. Could <laughs> I was supposed to go last June. I was oh, coming no. over for a course. I was going to do a course on chronic cough. It was a one-day course, but I was going for the week because. I was like, this is my opportunity. I can network. I can meet all these people that I know on Twitter. It's going to be fantastic. And then it was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> so it's on hold. One day I will get over there. But um, because <laughs> because I'm 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 kind of a unicorn in Canada, there isn't really a lot of physios doing respiratory work in private practice. So I'm in private practice, not public health working on breathing pattern disorders, but I've found so many allies myself over in the UK because it's much more um, prevalent there. Colleagues in New Zealand too, but of course they don't have COVID, so. <laughs> I know, they're so, they've done very well. <laughs> they've done very well. So anyway, so I, you know, messaging back and forth, hey, what are you finding out with chest pain? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And yeah, a lot of us do feel that, you know, if you're breathing in and holding that tension there or, you know, and a lot of times you breathe in, keep it there and then breathe on top of that, right? Mm. And then you're just absolutely, you know, working those costochondral joints and small muscles compared to the diaphragm, like all of that stuff. I do think it contributes to it. I think it puts us in a mechanical situation of disadvantage, if you will, with our breathing. And I suppose the, the the major difficulty is is we don't truly understand why this is happening yet, do we? Because you'd, you'd think respiratory virus, of course, it's going to have pulmonary dysfunction. But then the other elements to that is you mentioned things like um, inspiratory muscle weakness, which then makes you think, well, what's that about? Is that neurological? Is there something else going on? So there's so much to right? unpick with this disease. Yeah. Well, I know there was one article that I looked at, and but it was for um, ventilated patients that found diaphragm dysfunction. And I thought that they were saying that they actually found virus within the diaphragm and fibrosis within the diaphragm. And this was for ventilated patients. So I was like, well, maybe this is happening with our mild patients. Maybe some, because some of them are just, it is, it's quite weak. I also wonder though, if some of it is fear-based in that they don't want to take that big breath in when we do our testing, because it has hurt in the past to do that, right? Because they have that chest pain. So there's a little bit of that, right? We can't, I don't, is it really exactly weakness or is it, is it effort based? And they don't want to take that big deep breath for, you know, various reasons. Yeah. It would be perfectly understandable if it's painful. Exactly. And has caused a lot of pain. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. And that's, yeah. So anyway, I mean, there's lots of kind of interesting things showing up from that perspective. So. You also mentioned that you've been using some uh, metrics and I'm presuming you mean kind of like outcome measures or measurement tools. There is no consensus on what we should be using at the minute, but what, what have you been using? So obviously I'm looking at pulse oximetry. Yep. I'm looking at heart rate and I'm looking at blood pressure. And I really strongly believe that if we have 
patients showing up to community clinics, maybe they're going to our traditional orthopedic practices, I really think people need to be measuring that, right? So I think that's super important. And I know that, again, some of the patients that have come to see me from other clinics, they're not even getting pulse oximetry measured. And I'm like, well, I feel like when you've had a respiratory illness that is ongoing, we should probably check that. Now, all of these patients have pretty well normal um, pulse ox. Some of them dip a little bit lower, but not alarmingly low. Um, and heart rate, again, I think is really important. And blood pressure, one of my patients, unfortunately, is seeming to have increasing blood pressure and heart rate. And I'm trying to raise the alarm bells to the medical professionals. I feel like I'm banging my head against the wall, but I'm really trying to advocate for her. Um, but so I really think that that's important. And then, you know, just because of my respiratory background. Again, I'm testing the inspiratory muscle strength. Do I think that needs to be present in every um, physio clinic out there? Probably not. Um, and then I also measure um, carbon dioxide, exhaled carbon dioxide. So I have a um, capnograph, if you will. And that just helps me see if there are some hyperventilation issues going on. Do we have some mismatch in breathing physiology? Um, I also like it. It. I always say, this is just drawing your breath for me. So I can see what you're doing breath to breath. So I can see if they're, how fast they're breathing. It's a little bit more accurate count than me just watching them breathe and counting. Um, so I like that part of it. Um, and then just, you know, just marking down whether I'm thinking that they're having post-exertional malaise. We're using some outcome measures on um, how people feel about their breathing and the multi-dimensional fatigue index. And then we started to use the DePaul symptom questionnaire as well. Oh, fantastic. That's the short, the short form one though. Yeah. Just amazing. Because, that's, yeah. that's incredible to hear. I don't, I haven't heard many people using the DePaul symptom questionnaire, but I know that that's something that there has been a bit of a call to use because it's it's validated in the context of MECFS for measuring post-exertion malaise, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, so just trying to get a, you know, can, can we gather some information? And, you know, it, it might be at the end of it, we look at it and go, yeah, no, it's so variable. There's no conclusions that can be drawn from it. But I think the more information that we gather, the more helpful it will be in the long run to other clinicians, to whatever, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to be a, a really big topic for the future, isn't it? Around how we do um, integrated uh, data collection research uh, um, that, that's also across borders, uh, because mm -hmm. this is a global pandemic. And so mm -hmm. we, there's, there's such opportunity uh, to uh, collect data in many different ways. And hopefully that can be joined up uh, with yeah. studies and stuff. Yeah, yeah so we're trying to we're trying to get into some research. It's hard because I'm I'm outside of academia, right? I'm not attached to any institution. Um, so it makes it really difficult. I did get approached by a researcher at our university here in Calgary. Um, so we're kind of collaborating on putting out a um, um, kind of a survey as well to try and get um, a little bit more standardized um, kind of patient reported outcome measures as well um, with that survey so that it, that could help guide potential treatment. Um, right now, my colleague and I are, um, we are trying desperately to get some sort of COVID rehab recognized in our system here. Right now we have a post COVID clinic that is respirologists okay. and that's it. So they're just testing or reviewing 
tests and scans and that's it. There's no funding to include physiotherapy or OT or anyone else. They're, they're hoping to just um, create a, like put these long COVID patients or post-COVID, because I mean, it's it's anyone with symptoms greater than three months. So it could be, you know, the long COVID where we see a lot more of the fatigue related issue, but it could just be ongoing respiratory symptoms. But so they're trying to funnel them into some existing pathways that we have that are not COVID-based that already have a significant wait list. So we're just like, oh, this is really frustrating. Like we need to have something developed. We're trying really hard to create some sort of public private um, communication strategy because right now it's it the within our public system so in our hospitals and inpatient and outpatient wards through there um, are hesitant to refer into the community into private practices because they don't want to be seen as a conflict of interest okay. but we're kind of like it's in the patient's best interest <laughs> That's what we're trying to facilitate here is let's close this gap and help our patients. So and 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 that's you know, I think that there's there's a lot of eyes on the UK at the moment because the perception mm -hmm. is that potentially we're um responding in in a, a particular way. Uh, but certainly I know that there are still some challenges here. And yeah. it, it's certainly not an ivory tower at the moment of of excellence in terms of uh, delivery of services or because mm -hmm. You know, we also have a very large acute COVID crisis. Um, and so therefore, there's a healthcare system that's responding to that. So right. people living with long COVID are also in the queue with everyone else that's living with a chronic health condition if they yeah. have never touched a hospital when living with long COVID. Um, yeah. So yeah, so me included. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's exactly. And our long COVID, our long COVID clinic or post-COVID clinic is again for those with a positive test. Well, we have a lot of people that were sick in February and March that didn't qualify for tests. Um, I have uh, I have somebody who was who uh, again the, the flight attendant, long haul flight attendant, so actually was over in Europe, got sick there, was grounded there finally got well enough to come home. By the time she got home, they tested her, but our testing was so early that, that her nasal swab only went into her nostril, didn't go all the way back. And so the test was negative. She subsequently had a pulmonary embolism. <laughs> like it, it's pretty much COVID. Like you couldn't, yeah. I'm not sure how you could attribute this to anything else, right? All the symptoms match and she can't get into the COVID clinics because she doesn't have a positive test. Yeah, that's really sad because I know that certainly one of the big drives here in the UK, in the absence of a consensus definition on what long COVID is, is, is actually based on uh, a symptom profile. Um, yeah. But actually, even with the, the, the current working diagnostic, well, the, the definition of it, it's actually on a time frame um which is actually after acute covid if you've had symptoms for 12 weeks or more equals long covid um so it's kind of loose but it doesn't require to have to have a positive test because of the yeah. known issues around access to uh yeah. testing and also some people's tests maybe aren't coming back as positive um yeah. for reasons. and uh, that that's you know a, a particular challenge one question i did have for you was um I've seen online, we've talked about the, the benefits of Twitter. There are also negatives of Twitter, but I'll focus on the benefits for now, um, which is I've seen lots of people reaching out for kind of support and help. Um, and more recently, for people that have been living with long COVID that are 
community dwellers, let's call them, uh, never touched a hospital and still struggling with potentially breathing pattern disorders, but calling it breathlessness or, or difficulty breathing. In the absence of being able to access some services, are there things that are available online that might be reliable resources that you think people could access that might help them to get started with understanding whether what they've got is a breathing pattern disorder? Yeah, um, and you know what? Uh, I think that, um, I, like I, I have a little bit of stuff on my website, but it's not specifically long COVID related. I understand that the um, physiotherapy for hyperventilation disorders out of the UK, they have a pretty good website that has some resources there. Um, I have seen things, I, and now this triggers me, I'm like, I'm gonna have to gather this stuff and I'll put it on my website under one nice little resources section. Um, but I have seen um, various things kind of circling around again from the UK because there are more therapists there that are aware of breathing pattern disorders. I think I saw somebody floating out about the BREATHE trial, which is more for asthma. So the B-R-E-A-T-H-E and Bruton um, out of, she kind of started at that. Um, um, so I know that there's that that's accessible online. Um, but that now I'm going to write that down and I'll put it. <laughs> oh, you're coming away from a podcast with a job to do. Look at this. I am. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> because I do think that there are some, there are some good resources out there. Right. And, and, and um, there's, there's definitely clinicians out there and I do encourage people that have concerns about their breathing in terms of do they like, if they're having continued shortness of breath to consider that you know addressing some breathing pattern disorders and my big thing about that is find someone i.e a health professional that is qualified in it there's lots of stuff about breathing these days it's kind of the pop culture thing and there's lots of gurus out there uh -oh. really strongly encourage people to find the qualified health professionals that have the <laughs> medical knowledge behind breathing and respiratory disease before you just go and try the latest and greatest breathing technique yeah. it may not be appropriate at all. So yeah, I, I my heart sinks when I think of the the, the gurus. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, we have gurus in everything, right? I mean, I, I'm sure that if we looked hard enough in in you know within physio, there's somebody who's who's claiming that this is what you have to do. You know, the glute amnesia and all of those kinds of things where you go, oh dear, oh dear. But, um, <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, you know, really try to find somebody that that knows uh, what they're talking about from a from a medical standpoint as well. I think it's it we it, it's pretty easy, especially when we're talking about breathing to to create a physiological change in our bodies with that, like breathing is not that simple. It's not just in and out. It's not that's you know, there's so much more to it. It's so much more complex. Like my shirt, it's very complex. I love um, your t-shirt, look at that. I, okay, <laughs> that's my, it's my work shirt because I get to show everybody like very, in, you know, um, it's like 3D diagram here. Um, but, uh, you know, it's really complex. And, and, and it, then you add in the complexities of long COVID in terms of dysautonomias or mm -hmm. tachycardia and stuff like that. Boy, you really don't want to be doing uh, weird and wonderful things with your breathing that could have a, an effect on that heart rate and that autonomic nervous system in a negative way, right? So I, you know, 
And I'm sure that long COVID um, is, you're finding that's the same that in the support groups. Well, I found that if I did this, everything went away, right? There is a lot of, a lot of that. And, and it, you know, people mean it in the best of intentions, but we always have to be careful, especially yeah. in something that we don't know much about. We have to really tread lightly on, on advice, health advice. Oh my goodness. Unsolicited. I, I, uh, you're singing from the same hymn sheet as me. I mean, like, so there's, uh, I'm going to go off topic slightly if that's okay. Oh, for uh, sure. So, so there's a TV show that's just aired in the UK called It's a Sin. And mm-hmm. so it's based on, uh, it's by Russell T. Davis. Uh, and it's based uh, between 1981 and 1991. And it's on the lived experiences of people living through their HIV and AIDS epidemic when it first started all the trials and tribulations like personally as a physiotherapist that specializes and works in HIV and as a gay man myself it feels personal it's mm-hmm. it's real it feels it's, it's an incredibly traumatic but also an incredibly accurate show um but there are bits in there that kind of really resonated with kind of the current pandemic which is that when there isn't treatments, when there's a lack of knowledge, when there are people that don't really understand, sometimes people can get desperate and try different things. And there's a particular scene where people are about to like drink drink bleach. And you think kind of in the show that is, and you think kind of how now there are people that are desperate I'm desperate. I'm on loads of supplements because I want to feel and be better. And, you know, I'm very lucky that I am feeling an awful lot better than I was. I'm not hundred percent back to recover, back to baseline, but nearly there. Yeah. But I still take the tablets because I I'm desperate not to go back. So I see these parallels as well between how humans react during times of fear without knowledge and skills. And as health professionals, we have to be very, very mindful of our good intentions and the potential unintended consequences. So I I just want to completely echo everything you said there. Oh, and I say that, and then I go to my patients. So, uh, so I just saw some people chatting about this. Uh, (laughs) Why don't you go check it out? I don't say, I think you should try this. Just so you know, this came across my feed. Um, It you know, and it was medical professionals talking about it. Why don't you check it out and talk to your doctor about it? So, you know, I'm very careful to not say, although I do have to say the antihistamine one seems to be slightly positive effects, at least for some of my patients here. I don't know if you guys have been hearing that at all, but I've had a few people respond positively. Actually, what the response has been with the antihistamines is they didn't realize how clogged up they were until they took the antihistamines. So I usually I'm saying, do you have allergies normally? And the ones that have allergies, I'm like, why don't you talk to your doctor about taking the antihistamines? Because I feel like maybe there's a little bit of an exaggerated response. So I don't know if it's going to be significant enough or a short it's certainly thing. something that warrants investigation uh right? robust research trials which is the suspicion around mast cell activation syndrome um yeah. which which is not new but it's certainly new to me um yeah yeah right <laughs> here we are like oh this is ex- this is new and exciting and it, actually it's funny because you know we both had our eyes open to you know this whole new population and and uh when i i give a lot of talks on on breathing pattern disorders and treating and assessing. And and I go, 
you know, everyone's like, oh, wow, this is, I didn't even know physios did this. And I said, you know, if I gave this talk in the UK, people would kind of laugh me out of town like I was some sort of special thing. But over here, I could feel special because there isn't very many people doing it, right? And I'm sure it's the same thing where you and I are like, oh, wow, this is exciting. And, and yeah. people are like, we've been living this for 10 years. Like, where have you been? You know, if it doesn't come across your particular patient load, you know, it, it's purely acceptable for us to not know about it, right? Like, I mean, I've kind of phased out of, out of musculoskeletal rehab, but I'm not going to be able to assess someone's running patterns and figure out, you know, something for them. Mm. You kind of, you get into what you get into. And as long as you have an Absolutely. open mind about exploring other things, right? Like, you know, when this came, when ME came out and I was like, what is this? I didn't just go, yeah. whatever, right? I, I dove in and went, oh, this is actually really relevant. And I think that's really important that we as physios do that is, is, is wow, this is, this is interesting. Is this relevant to me? It is. Okay. I need to learn more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I specialize in HIV. So, you know, uh, the, the, the benefits of having a, a health professional that specializes in that particular health condition is hopefully you understand the majority of things that are relevant to that health condition that the, the risk is is that you don't understand everything else that's out there in the world uh but that's why we have specialists right um, yeah. so yeah absolutely i think it's more than okay to appreciate that we've got blind spots but certainly when we spot those blind spots it's how we deal with them isn't it yeah, um, yeah. i did have a question for you actually so um this week in the uk um the english national opera um, has released some uh, uh, data on a program they've been doing, which is opera singing for people that are living with long COVID. And apparently now it's available to people free on our national health service, because we have a, a health service where healthcare is free at the point of access, paid through by taxes. Uh, by everybody in the UK. Um, and we've been having some really interesting discussions in our long COVID physio group about this, thinking that people that have got breathing pattern disorders may struggle with singing. And we've had our thoughts, but I wondered if I could ask you about that. Yeah. So that's really interesting that you bring that up. Um, my business clinic, whatever you would like to call it, because this is actually my clinic now. Welcome, because I work Hi, from home. I closed, my, <laughs> I closed my clinic. I didn't feel it was very safe to have people with respiratory disease coming into a public space and taking their mask off to show me their breathing. So we do a lot of virtual stuff and I go to people's homes. I just feel that that's a safer option. But anyway, um, for three, I think we're coming up on four years, we've been running a program called Breathe, Sing, Move. And so I actually have an a soprano, if you will, um, voice teacher. She, so she has her doctorate in vocal pedagogy. pedagogy I always say that wrong. Anyway, oh. she teaches. <laughs> she teaches. You tell me. She teaches. Yeah, well, she essentially is the how to teach voice. She, she teaches how to teach voice. Anyway, brilliant. She is so knowledgeable on all things voice, upper airway, breathing we are on the same page about it all i have no qualms with having her lead a class and teach proper breathing especially as it relates to voicing so we also talk talking and and singing so we run this program every week we have it through the support of uh, our provincial branch of the lung association canadian lung association so it's free for people to attend um and so we've transitioned it to online and it's an hour and so her and i were just chatting this past Tuesday after our class, she's like, I wonder if we should have one for long COVID. And I went, oh, 
I'm a little worried about the fatigue aspect of things. I'm worried that it's going to take out, you know, like it's, it's, you know, an hour of singing. It's, it's, it's very physical and it can be cognitive, like all of that. Right. But then, so shortly after this conversation, I was like, well, you know, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure yet, but she was quite keen. So then a couple of days later, sure enough, I see the UK, like, I was like, oh, well, okay, let's revisit it. Let's think about how do we want to do this. And, and actually through um, a, a Facebook group that we have for this Bradcliffe breathing method, which is what I do and teach and, and whatnot out of New Zealand, um, we have some UK practitioners. And so somebody said, well, this is actually how it goes in order to get into this, they have to have clearance, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever. And I was like, wow, we could then do that. You know, if, if I'm screening patients and assessing patients and determining their um, ableness, readiness or wh whatever, like, is this appropriate, appropriateness, I guess, for them to participate in this and maybe we don't make it an hour, maybe we only make it 45 minutes and, you know, we go through, um, maybe we leave the move part out of it because it's the, our breathing move is meant for a, a sneaky way of doing pulmonary rehab for people with lung disease that oh, may not like to move. <laughs> right? So sometimes we dance and sometimes we do other things, right? So um, we get everybody moving, but again, maybe that's not appropriate for some mm -hmm. of these, but the breathing and the voicing, lots of people, I don't know in your group, lots of people that we've seen have voice issues, hoarse voice, yes. sore throat, yes. things like that, right? And so what will happen is if you have that inflammation in the upper airway and you still continue to try to speak and you strain, so if you're short of breath and you can't coordinate your breathing and talking very well and you strain a little bit more and maybe your voice, you're doing that, clamping down, then you get into that pattern that's going to create lots of problems. And so mm -hmm. Rachel, who does our program is all about upper airway health and vocal hygiene. And so it's like, wow, maybe this, so we've been like, I was like, oh, maybe we should look at it. And so I quickly like put out a, uh, you know, a template of what do you think? And, and so yeah. we're going to try and maybe cobble something together and, and see exactly. if that would work. Cause we would have, I'm pretty sure we would have support from our lung association because we we are designated some funds to run our program and we don't use up all of those funds every year. So I, I think we would be able to say, listen, can we divert some of those unused funds to a long COVID or post COVID, if you will, singing class. Yeah, it's really interesting because I know that in our long COVID physio group uh, for like the peer support group, um, that, that exact topic of kind of like the hoarse voice and the sore throat came up, but also people that have had support from physiotherapists that specialize in breathing pattern disorders they've been they've they've mentioned that they've been a lot more focused on nasal breathing rather than mm -hmm. um, mouth breathing and so the not, not not many of us in fact only I think one of us in our group is actually in the English National Opera program but um, no one else is because uh, none of us are able to get in because we don't access long COVID clinics <laughs> but um, I, I won't have I won't have a positive test as the as the cutoff <laughs> yeah don't I can but, guarantee that <laughs> but we were wondering kind of like we don't know what the program necessarily is like and we were just opening up discussions about you know singing to, to us seemed a bit more mouth breathing versus nose breathing, whether that was a thing, whether it's important or not. So yeah, it'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so uh, there is absolutely no way for us to sing and speak without opening our mouths. <laughs> 
not going to happen, right? But it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's functional. We have to learn to breathe and speak and do that through our mouth. So there's lots of tips that you can do in terms of um, coordinating breathing and speaking. And even if you're not a singer or your goal isn't to sing, these programs help you speak better because you are doing that coordination. And so between Rachel and I in our program, we we, you know, we started off with here's our normal, like at everybody doing normal breathing first in and out through your nose, then we go through our whole class. And at the end of it, what do we do? We come back to nose breathing, restful breathing at the end, because singing requires larger volumes of air, you're being much more um, uh, dynamic with your breathing. But at the end of it, let's close our mouth again and breathe through our nose, we can learn how to breathe better. So um, so here's interesting. Um, the Crown. Do you guys watch Bridgerton too? Do you guys have Bridgerton on yeah, Netflix? Yeah. yeah and yeah. The Crown, right? Yeah, yeah. All the women breathe like this. When they're doing oh, they gasp. They clutch their pearls. <laughs> <laughs> and it drives me crazy, right? I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, okay, it's the corsets, and I know they're trying to create drama, but come <laughs> off it. Right? These chests pounding, right? And so learning how to speak and sing that you breathe out and then you breathe in again into your belly, there's none of this happening, right? So we really focus on that in our program. And I'm going to assume just knowing um, through Twitter who's out there leading some of the, the, the singing for lung health programs and things like that, they know what they're talking about in terms of breathing patterns. So it's actually really good to learn mm. how to breathe through your mouth and talk or sing and coordinate and regulate that. And then the flip side is learning the vocal health. So as we speak, I need to sip my water because you're right, breathing through your mouth is very drying. So we learn those tips. We learn that in, you know, how do we modulate our breath so that we're not getting all the way to the end of our breath and absolutely having to heave in each time. So that's, that's what you learn with that. And it's actually a really good and useful, um, useful thing to do for sure. Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you. And it, it, it's, it's totally outside of my usual scope, to be fair. I, I, I have no background in breathing pattern disorders. So this is an education for me as well. So thank you. Perfect. And, um, that, so apparently the um, Mount Sinai uh, COVID rehabilitation program um, has created a, an online breathwork program called Stasis. Um, mm -hmm. We've had one person in our group. Uh, long COVID physio who's gone through that who who has described it very similar to how you just described your interventions there so it sounds like there's potentially some uh shared uh thinking patterns going on with that but I know that there there are there are things that are emerging because it seems like breathing pattern disorders are not uncommon and I'm just wondering how many people with long COVID might be silently having these issues and yeah. not quite aware of them. Like I've had personally, I've had ups and downs with my breathing, but I've never classified my breathing as a particular problem. Like it's not my, my symptoms. I, I don't even right. call it in my symptom list really. But I do notice that when I walk, I if I walk to, from the train station to the hospital, which is, it's about a kilometer. Um, so it's not particularly long. 
um, takes me about 15 minutes to do. But I notice by the end of it, I feel like I'm shallow breathing. And I've been mm. doing that for 10 months, but I don't think mm-hmm. much of it. And I, <laughs> right. so, but I, I wonder if there are many other people out there as well that are also living with long COVID who maybe are having slight dysfunctional breathing patterns. Well, exactly. Or they attribute it to that they're fatigued. Yes, right. So they think they think I get I'm out of breath because I'm fatigued. And that can definitely be a portion of it. Maybe there is some of that respiratory muscle weakness. Right. So once mm-hmm. you get up and start walking, you need a little bit more power from your diaphragm so that you can draw a bigger breath in because walking requires more than just sitting. So we're going to increase our volume and breathing first. So then we're going to use our diaphragm. Right. So is there some weakness in there? Is it again that poor mm-hmm. coordination? Sometimes what happens is we get this overcompensation. Oh, I'm exercising. I better breathe more. So all of a sudden you're breathing faster than you need to breathe. And again, your heart rate's going to follow with that. So your heart rate's going to go up and that's going to make you feel breathless as well. Right. So it, you know, it could be a whole bunch of things. And, you know, from what we've been seeing, again, lots of people are having this breathing pattern disorder with it. I mean, I guess potentially because I'm more respiratory based, maybe I'm seeing more of the people that have respiratory based symptoms. Right. So you know, there is that aspect to it. And, and, you know, with the, with the singing group, with the online program, you know, so many people are being affected by ongoing symptoms. It's going to be hard, you know, as we talked at the beginning, it's really individual based, but we don't have enough resources to see each individual. So then these group programs come out and the difficulty of the group programs, because I've been tossing that around in my head. Should I, you know, should I create an online long COVID so I can reach everybody within the province of Alberta, right? I can only really reach people within my city. Should I do that? But then I, I worry about creating something for a group of people that are really a group of individuals, right? And so I, I don't know, I think the education component and the, the management and helping people, I guess, um, be aware of symptoms and where they could go for more help or what maybe not to do or something like that. I guess that can be helpful, but you also feel like, is that, is that enough? Is that appropriate? Right. I think this is the difficulty of all really with anything, right. I'm sure you find that in your perspective of, of, I want to reach as many people as possible. Therefore I'm going to try and hit 10 people at once, except that, that person's not going to benefit from this little thing that I'm saying. And I don't think that person should do what I'm saying here. So hard. Absolutely. And I think if we look at um, the landscape we're in, which is a global respiratory disease pandemic. So therefore there's lots of social distancing, there's lockdowns all over the world, more so in some countries than others. Um, And because of that, technology is being used an awful lot to reach more people. And certainly we've seen that some of the programs that have been developed for people recovering from coronavirus that are not necessarily specific to long COVID, um, I I won't name them, but those programs that have been developed, some of the criticisms of those programs is that they are a bit generic and that's because they have to be, because they're a catch-all. And so it's a bit of a catch-22 with that. But I know some of the conversations I've been having with different people is about the need for person-centered care, which is obvious. Of course we need person-centered care, but how do we deliver that when we are in the midst of a global pandemic with resource insecurities Mm -hmm. and increasing demand above capacity? Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a, 
leave that one wide open, I reckon. <laughs> right, right. If only we had the answers to that oh, one. Yeah, just on the back of a packet of cards. That'll be yeah, it. Yeah, yeah we'll down. fix this. We got this. We if got this. <laughs> we, haven't been, we haven't been successful in any other area, right? Pulmonary <laughs> rehab, oncology, HIV. We haven't been successful in it yet, but we got it for We've this We got one. it now. Yeah, we came up with the answer. We plucked it out of the air. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, Jessica. So I have really enjoyed this. And I think we've covered so many different things. And I, I want to just ask you one last question, if that's okay. If there was one thing that you could share right now with anybody that may be listening, what would it be? Well, I think it would be that um, we need to, as as physios out there, I'm going to maybe address it to the physios out there that might be treating patients with long COVID or starting to see them, is I think that we need to be educated. We need to be on Twitter and seeing and 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 seeing what's being said within this patient population, we need to listen to the patients because they are ultimately going to guide the treatment. I think so. I think it's really important that that's where we that's where we look first. Keep our eye on the evidence as it's emerging, um, and I think we need to support and believe our patients. I think many people with long COVID, we're starting to give them that, but for so long floundered without anyone believing them. I think it's really important that we as physios can advocate, right? So that's what I'm doing, right? I might not have any answers for these people. I, you know, I can give them some breathing help, but you know, I feel a little bit like I'm spinning my wheels. It's, it's frustrating from my perspective to not be able to help more. Right. And I know we've talked about that or you've talked about that with others in terms of being sick and not being able to do more. Mm. But from my perspective, I feel also helpless that I can't do more for you. So but I think that the thing that we can do is is, you know, wave and say, hey, this isn't this doesn't look right for this patient. We, we need some some help. So I'm writing letters to specialists and to GPs and to, you know, this one doesn't seem right. Please do, please, can we do something about this? So I think that's important. I think we have a good role in that. You know, physios, you know, really, although we talk about how we kind of get into our little niche, we actually have this broad scope of information and the ability to understand a broad scope of information. So let's use our skills to their full potential. So if you're working in the clinic and somebody with post-COVID, long COVID, whatever comes, look at that patient. And if you don't know, then go and find the answers or, or find someone who can help that patient. I think that's really important rather than just pushing through with what's worked in the past, it might not work this time. Absolutely. Well, Jessica, I want to say thank you for not only validating people's experiences, but for advocating for people with long COVID and being an incredible ally. So thank you very, very much. Well, I, you know, thank you for for creating long COVID physio. Um, and I know I, I messaged you this, but my patients really enjoy the podcasts. They really do. I, I put it to them now. I say, listen, I want you to see what people who are in the know and know better and, you know, <laughs> right? Know better. I say that we're terrible we patients, aren't we? <laughs> we're terrible patients. We but I think, I think that it's really important that 
that individuals that are not health professionals see health professionals having the same struggles, I think it really helps them to understand that this is not an easy time, yeah. that despite the fact that we say, listen, we, we you, you just need to follow these pacing rules, you just, <laughs> with the recognition of it's really hard, listen to how hard it is, you know, from a health professional standpoint, they, they, they know this, they, you know, they've, they've, said these things to patients before recognizing that it is really hard and i think it's it has like the the feedback that i've had has been really positive mm. from them listening to physios and ot's talk about their own experiences so i think it's it's great what you're doing and uh mm -hmm. certainly I, it's a resource that i'm sharing with a lot of patients but also in my coming talks that's going to be one of the first you know resources for physios to access is the long covid physio because we oh, can you. learn from our colleagues absolutely oh well thank you thank you and thank you <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome